Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is going to be a fantastic show. David Wheaton's going to join me in just a minute. We're going to continue our discussion on the book of Exodus, and then Nicole Maring is going to come on and talk about her new book about uh, Awake, Not Woke. It's going to be an interesting discussion. And then in hour two, Anna Raska is going to join us. We're going to talk about the prophet Jonah. That's what's on tap for today. I'm excited. To bring David back onto the show, he is the host of the Christian Worldview. You can always go to the ChristianWorldview.org to learn more about David and his podcast and his radio show and his books and his writings and everything else about his cool life, which I always like talking about. But to God be the glory. Uh, David, welcome back to the show. Bill, so good to be back with you in this new year. Yeah, I agree. But we're still in our book of Exodus, and we call this uh, series How Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God. Yeah, it really does. That that's really the theme of the whole book. It's hard to to read Exodus and and just not miss just the amazing things who God is mm. and, and what He does. You know, from bringing His people, His chosen people, the Jewish nation, out of Egypt and slavery, and bringing them to what's called the Promised Land or modern day Israel, and the miracles that that God enacts to do this. And even along the way, we're in the middle of the journey now as they as they left left Egypt now, and they're in the wilderness. They're going to take 40 years to get there because of their disobedience, but it's going to be an, an epic journey as well, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where we are right now. Well, we are going to look at chapters 18 and 19 today, so if you're taking notes or you have your Bible out, uh, but we do want to do a, a little bit of recap of what we talked about last time in verse in uh, chapter 16 and 17. Yeah, these chapters, especially Exodus 16, was sort of the manna chapter, mm-hmm. the, the bread from heaven chapter. And and you see early on here, as they're they're leaving Egypt, God is just testing them over and over again, and, and the people are not responding well. I mean, they're, the, the, the key word is grumbling or complaining. They're constant—here here they've just seen all these miracles, these plagues, and the, the Passover, the killing of the firstborn, and the crossing of the Red Sea, all these incredible things, right? And God leading them in a— a pillar by uh, a pillar of fire by night and, and cloud by day. I mean, they're just seeing this on a daily basis, and yet they're they're doubting God's goodness and God's purposes, and they're grumbling and complaining. And we saw this in Exodus 16. You know, they don't have food. They say, "Well, you know, I wish we had been just stayed back in Egypt, and, and you know, where we had pots of meat and we, when we ate bread to the full." I mean, you just look at that and you think, "You got to be kidding me! You're you're crying out in anguish and help us, save us." When we're in Egypt now, because you're hungry, uh, you, you wish you were back enslaved, and so. But the interesting thing is, Bill, that God responds to their their grumbling not by just punishing them, but actually providing for them, which is just shows the the goodness and the mm. mercy of God that He doesn't give us what we deserve immediately. Uh, he reaches out to us and, and and offers us to repent and to follow him and gives us second chances and so forth. And so he does this in Exodus 16. He he sends bread from heaven, this this manna, this 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 wafer-like bread that just appears 
when the dew melts off in the morning, there's just bread that they go out to eat. I mean, you have to feed 2 million people around this thing. How, how, how do you do that? And so they were seeing a miracle literally every day. He was also providing quail for them in the evening. Quail would come, just go out and catch quail. And there was also tests, though, within God's provision. And so they were told only to gather enough manna for one day. In other words, trust God day by day. Uh, you know, is God going to provide? Are you going to are you going to trust Him to do that? And so some of them w- would not trust God. They try to gather more than one's one's day worth of manna. And the problem is, it would go bad. It would it would it would get you know bad and it would develop worms and that kind of thing. And so they they learn right away. They, they look got to trust God. Same thing. Don't gather on the Sabbath. If you gather enough, two days worth on Friday, you'll have enough for Friday and Saturday. Well, again, they they disobeyed. It was all these little tests going on here. Um, but even when they disobey, God continues to provide for them. It just gives you a picture of who these people are. They, they don't have a fear of God. They, they don't have an awareness of who God is and what sin is. They're, they're self-serving rather than God-serving. And we, we just when we see these people, we should never, and we mentioned this last time, see them as, oh boy, they're really clueless. What's the matter with them? We really should see our own sinful tendencies that if we were in the same situation, we would probably be doing the exact same thing. And uh, it just shows how great God is that he continued to be patient with them and continue to provide for them despite their sinfulness. And I'll just make one more point from last time with this this chapter on manna, Bill, is that manna, bread from heaven, what was a physical food they were eating that was sustaining them. But th- this was a, a foreshadowing of the spiritual bread that would come down from heaven someday in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that fed them physically, the manna back then in the Old Testament, but there was there would be coming in the future someday, and you read this in John chapter 6, the New Testament, when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven. He's referring back to what we're talking about right now. Remember, we've discussed that, how often this exodus is referred to all over Scripture, I mean, this was a, the, the biggest kind of culminating, pivotal moment in the nation of Israel. Still celebrate Passover to this day. And Jesus in the New Testament refers back to this time that it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And then he says this, the, the people who wanted this, he had just fed 5,000 out of some simple loaves of bread, had done this miracle in front of them. They said, Lord, give, give us this bread. They were thinking, you know, feed us physically. And Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. In other words, yeah, your fathers ate this physical bread, this manna that came from heaven, but here I am. I am the bread of life. I am the ultimate manna. If you eat of me, if you take me, if you believe in me, you're never going to hunger because I'm going to satisfy you in this life and also going to give you eternal life in the, in, in the next life in heaven. This is the message of the gospel that's being foreshadowed in the, in the provision of manna that God's giving them on a daily basis. Absolutely thrilling, thrilling news. All right, let me look at a passage out of Exodus 18. Let me read verse 5. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. He said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So, David, maybe you could talk about the importance or the significance of this visit from Moses' father-in-law. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's actually the whole chapter is devoted to it. You think, why would they devote a chapter to a visit from Moses' <laughs> father-in-law? You know, well, you got to remember now they're 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 journeying through the wilderness, and they they're not that far away now. They they've only been out about three months, and they if you remember back to one of our previous conversations, you know, this is earlier now in Exodus. Remember when Moses was forty years old? He he. He broke up the fight between his his two countrymen. He had killed the Egyptian who was who was beating his one of his fellow Jewish brothers, not not true brothers, but just brethren. And uh, Pharaoh heard about it, and he, Moses flees the country, and he went to the land of Midian, where he encountered a family, the family of Jethro. And the Jethro was not Jewish; he was a Gentile, he was a Midianite. These were these were actually false god worshippers. But somewhere along the way. Jethro came, Moses' father-in-law, who would become his father-in-law, because Moses married one of his daughters, had two children. And so now, 40 years later, Moses gets called back to Egypt. Now Moses is 80 years old, and now he's led Israel, or the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. And so they're going through the wilderness. You know where they're coming near? They're coming near where Moses was when he originally went out in the wilderness 40 years earlier to where the land of Midian, where, where Jethro, his father-in-law, lives, where he, where he met his wife, where he received from God the commission. Remember at the, the Mount Sinai, the burning bush? Moses was standing alone on that, on that Mount Sinai when God called him and said, you need to go back to Egypt. You need to lead my people out of there. Now, just think about this. I, this is probably less than a year earlier. Moses went back to Egypt. All the plagues happened, the crossing of the Red Sea. And now Moses finds himself not alone near Midian, near where his father-in-law lived, but with two million people. Now, what kind of fulfillment, what do you think that did to Moses's faith to think back where he was alone in that mountain? He'd been with Midian with his father-in-law and his wife for 40 years. And now he comes back less than a year later with two million people. And so it's likely as they journeyed toward where Jethro was living, where Moses had spent those 40 years, that he probably sent his wife and two sons ahead to meet his father-in-law. And this is where the father-in-law hears what all that has happened in Egypt and coming out of Egypt, and they're journeying to the promised land. And Jethro, Moses's father-in-law, comes out to meet Moses. And it's, 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 it's clearly that he's be, he's become a believer some point along the way. He says, "Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. And Jethro took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron and all the elders of Israel ate a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. So this is a significant chapter." where Moses' father-in-law comes to him, and also for the advice he's going to give him next. Mm, yeah, I think let's talk about that advice that Moses' father-in-law gave him right after the break. David Wheaton is my guest. We're continuing our study in the book of Exodus. We'll be right back. guests. We're continuing our study on Exodus and the series title we're calling How Epic 
Exodus displays the awesome God, and it certainly does. David, let's go back into Exodus 18 and get back to the advice that Moses' father-in-law gave him. Yeah, well, the reason he gave him advice is that he saw what Moses' daily life was like. So he comes and visits him, you know, because he's near, the the nation is traveling near where where Jethro lives, right near Mount Sinai. This is where, by the way, we're going to talk about next time is is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. This is a huge moment in in the whole Bible. Yeah, so So maybe we should talk about what his daily life was really like. Right. Yeah, let's, let's do that first. Right. So his daily life is that he, it says in Exodus 18, 13, it came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now, when Moses' father-in-law saw that all he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? And then Moses said, well, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. And, and so, you know, Jethro is just thinking, stunned, that this one man, Moses, is literally from morning until evening standing there trying to re- resolve disputes between all the people that he's, hmm. he's leading out. And, and Jethro obviously identifies right away that this is, this is not, not going to work. You know, you're going to get exhausted uh, this is not going to be good for the people, not going to be good for you. And so Moses' father-in-law, to your question, Bill, gives, some, he gives Moses some advice. He said, this thing you're doing is not good. He said, listen to me, I'll give you counsel, and you shall be the Lord's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God, and you teach the people the statutes and the laws of God and make them make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work which they are to do. And so he's saying, number one, you need to be accountable to God yourself, but teach the people what the ways of God are so they can re- almost resolve the disputes themselves. But part two of this is, he says, second piece of advice he gives, and by the way, this is the basis for the whole <laughs> chain of command or chain of authority, whatever you want to call it, that's implemented in every business and civil society and military everywhere it is shown right here in Exodus 18. He says, furthermore, you shall select out of the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times, but every major dispute they'll bring to you, but the minor disputes let them judge. So basically he's saying, you know, choose able men, capable people who fear God, who those who revere God, men of truth, not of lies, those who hate dishonest gain, not corrupt. And so in these two lessons he's teaching Moses or recommending to him, you know, implement a a chain of command or authority, basically, teach people how to resolve things themselves. But if they can't, have this chain of authority where there are certain men over a certain number of people and then up, up and up and up like a pyramid, like in any company, there's a president and on down, managers and so forth. But the critical thing here, Bill, is not just that, not just this the structure he was telling them about that's been used for ever, ever since. But the key thing is, who were the leaders? What, what were their qualifications? It wasn't the most successful leaders. It wasn't the most, the best business leaders. It was, the, it was a character issue. It was capable men who fear God, hmm. men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. Character matters. And we see this so much in our civil leaders, you know, how someone lives in their private life doesn't matter in their public. We hear that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. This is not what the Bible says. 
the application here is not for just civil leaders and judges to have high character, but also for church leaders as well, as we're going to see in the New Testament. Character is the priority for a leader, not just capability, not business success. So when, for instance, church elders are chosen to be on the elder board of church, business success is irrelevant to someone leading the church. What is completely relevant and commanded in Scripture is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, an elder then must be above reproach. Listen to the qualifications here, Bill. Must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He be, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control. And it goes on and on and on. In other words, there's nothing there about you know his education or his intelligence or his business success. It's all about the man's character. And this was set forth early on by Jethro when he says, choose able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. And we need to take that example today as we implement that into our churches. So true. So true, David. All right, let's move on to chapter 19. What is What exactly is being set up here in chapter 19? Yeah, all of chapter 19 of Exodus, if, if your listeners read this, it's just one big setup to what's going to happen in Exodus chapter 20 uh, when the giving of the, the Ten Commandments. I mean, the, again, this is the, the, one of the high points in, in, of history. I mean, we learn so much about who God is and what His will is for people just from the Ten Commandments, which are going to be given from God. God's going to descend on Mount Sinai in the wilderness there and give Moses and the people uh, his laws. And so now we're only three months into the journey again. They're going to be—they've they've reached a new camping spot here at Sinai. They're going to be there for 11 months, so three months in the journey. Now they're going to spend 11 months here, and God is going to give them his law uh, in the very next chapter, but there's a there's a preparation that goes in that isn't just like oh yeah tomorrow's God's gonna you know right you know, just kind of meet here and it's very informal and just kind of waltz in, no no not with God, God is going to present Himself to Moses and the people in a most unforgettable way, and so God is going to first of all reiterate His universal test not just for the nation of Israel but for all of man- mankind. Trust and obey me, and you will be blessed by me. And the people assent to that. They say, we do want to do that. All the Lord that he speaks to us, we will do. And so they do this. And then God says, well, here's the preparation before I give you the law. He's going to have them set up, basically prepare themselves for three days. God's holiness, which we'll talk about next, is going to be on full display but there is a, a major preparation for the giving of the law as God's going to descend down to Mount Sinai and give it to Moses and the people. All right. So let's continue this discussion on this display of God's holiness. It is on full display. And let's talk about why it's so important. Yeah. Well, again, God's holiness is—God has many character qualities and attributes. The ho- His holiness is the only one that's repeated— three times, Mm -hmm. when God is holy, holy, holy. This is the sum of all his attributes. This is what makes God different than us. We are other from God because he is so holy and we are not. In in this passage, as we read it, and I'll just read a couple sentences, it's God is not our buddy. He's not the big guy upstairs. (laughs) He's not only a God of love, but he's the holy, 
holy, holy God. And so he makes that very abundant and clear here. It says on the third day, after they've gone through two days of preparation, God's warned them, don't even come near this mountain. Anyone who comes near this mountain must be killed. Any animal that touches this in other words, he's coming down, he's going to make that mountain holy while he's on top of it. And it says, so it came about in the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. They were just in abject fear. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they all stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, just, just imagine, wow. just picture that scene in your mind, how awesome, in the truest word of the, the use, awesome that would be. And it says, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Whoa. And his smoke ascended <laughs> like the, the smoke of a furnace. I mean, it really, I, I read that, and it's like I'm getting goosebumps and I chills thinking about what that was. The whole mountain quaked violently. The mountain's quaking violently. Yeah. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and loud, louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And so it and this goes on from there. I won't take the time to read the whole thing, but it's important to get the scene for the holy God is coming down to give his law, and we need to be prepared and on our faces in humility and obedience before God is very different for us from us because he is perfectly sinless and holy, and we are not. And that's why we need to be made right with him. And that's the whole message of the gospel, that God is holy, we are not, and how can we be reconciled to him? And that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfectly sinless life so he could represent us and pay, sacrifice himself as our substitute, take our place and be punished for us on the cross so God's wrath and justice would be satisfied over our sin so that when we repent and believe, God could forgive us justly. He could be, the, he could be just and the justifier of all those who would come to him in repentance and faith. Hmm. You know, I read that verse, David. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole yeah. mountain quaked violently. It's like, do I have your attention now? Right, right. And, and God was doing it, by the way, in front of the people, yeah. showing that what he was about to give Moses was not something that just Moses just made up. He didn't just make up the law himself. This was clearly God giving the law to Moses, which the people were then to follow. That's incredible. Thank you so much, David, for this study. I'm loving this study, and I know everyone else is because it's uh, the Word of God and the way you teach it, it just comes alive. Once again, thank you. Well, thank you, Bill, for the opportunity. Yep, yep. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. David Wheaton has been my guest. You can go to thechristianworldview.org to hear any of David's podcasts or check out uh, his uh, website thechristianworldview.org. I'll take a little break. When we come back, Noelle Maring is joining me. She's written a book called Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. Be right back.
The woke movement is definitely escalating and now commands the focus of most American life and claims to be the sole authority and path to finding to fighting oppression and injustice in areas of gender, race, and sexuality. My guest has written a book called Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. Nicole Maring is her name. She's a fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And she's uh, on our studio line right now. Noel, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Oh, it's a, it's a very complicated topic that you've jumped into. So let me start by asking you, did you have some hesitations writing this one? You know, I didn't actually. Okay. Uh, I mean, so far as it was intimidating just to take on a book in general. Um, but no, the topic I felt like was something that I was I'm really interested in. I've been writing articles about it for a while. And it felt like it's a book that I really had to write in some ways. I, I, I just really wanted to write it. Um, and I thought it was, it was things that had a perspective from a, Christ, a Christian perspective on the subject needed to be put out there. Yeah. Can you sort of give us a, a working definition of, of the woke culture? Sure. I think that the, a neutral definition would be that to be woke is to be alert and attuned to the various layers of oppression in society, particularly okay. surrounding race, gender, sexuality. Okay. Uh, Nicely spoken, by the way. So oh. are you ag- against the woke culture? Uh, I am insofar as I really think that it, and what I explore in my book is that it's not fundamentally a movement for justice. I think it, it's actually fundamentally a movement that's unjust and unmerciful and, and ultimately becomes its own sort of secular religion that it cannot c- be compatible with Christianity. Um, and I think it's deeply dehumanizing and also wounds the very people that it aims to empower. Mm-hmm. So what is would be a response to uh, people that believe that being woke is pretty much required to overcome some of the racism and hatred uh, towards the oppressed. Yeah, no, I understand why they think that. And I think that's part of the power of the woke movement is that it seems like it's consistent with Christian principles. We want to walk with the oppressed and Mm -hmm. walk with the marginalized and the suffering. Um, But what I think we have to understand is that there's far more going on in the ideology than just a uh, movement based on compassion. For example, um, you know, a lot of people and Christians, I know, were kind of surprised to hear that Black Lives Matter had a belief statement that included goals like queering the culture, disrupting the nuclear family, Um, you know, and they thought, well, what does this have to do with racial justice? But I think if we understand what the woke movement is animated by, it's really a freedom from oppression from other other groups outside of ourselves, but also the our, the oppression of having to conform to sexual morality, um, and that part of our liberation is defying any kind of moral norm. Um, and the more transgressive we can be, the more free we we actually become. But but also first and foremost, it plays on identity politics. So it says. We are defined not by the love of God, but by the hatred of man. We're defined by the hatred in society, either as a perpetrator or as a victim. And this is a, a really a, a reduction of the human person, I think, cannot um, be entertained by the Christian. Mm-hmm. Noel, what about uh, people of faith? How should people of faith be responding to the woke culture? Well, I think first and foremost, the more that we can understand it and have clarity, because part of what happens, I think, is um, that it it really, because it operates on confusion, and it owns like the words that we, you know, it's claiming the language that Christians use, such as fighting for justice and helping, um, you know, we, we are 
anti-racist in the you know common understanding of that word, not in the Ibram X. Kendi version. Um, but part of that, so part of that confusion is that kind of play on words, claiming language that traditionally is ours. Um, and so I think the more that we can get sift past that confusion, understand what actually the movement does, um, then we can have the courage to resist it. But we have to understand it because otherwise we're going to get played, you know, <laughs> by the confusion. Um, and, and the more the clarity we have, the more we can help our brothers and sisters to see that this is actually going to, you know, really harm people. This is not a helpful movement. Mm-hmm. And victimization is a big part of this, isn't it? It is. And, I, you know, I think that, that that's one of the most disempowering parts of it is that you really you're given an incentive to kind of scan your environment and see how you're being wounded. Um, and, you know, we're all wounded in certain ways. Right. Uh, but once we start having a trying to claim like a moral stature based on ways that other people have hurt us, we really le- lose our ability to see how we need mercy. You know that I'm a sinner. I need mercy. And once I understand that, then I can look with the eyes of mercy upon each other. Um, but if I define myself based on the sins of the other person, then I'm in this posture of constant, constantly accusing. Who can I accuse? Who can I condemn? Um, so, I, I, you know, that, that's really the work of Satan. I think in, in a lot of ways, Satan calls us um, by our sins, you know, and, and uh, he's the great accuser. Um, but also it, you're finding your identity based on your ability to transgress the moral law. So that's another way in which we're saying this is who I am. I'm reduced to what I want to do with my you know, pelvic region. Um, and that's a, another hugely reductive definition of a human person. Mm-hmm. Noelle Maring is my guest. Her book is Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. And again, Noelle, I appreciate taking on a complicated subject. I know it's can be very emotional and controversial for many. Um, is Does being woke go against Christian values? Yeah, I mean, that's the main thesis of my book, is that I think fundamentally the target is not, you know, a group out there or a political movement. I think God himself is the, the fundamental target of this movement. Um, and, and there's a lot of ways that um, we can unpack that. But um, fundamentally, you know, I think it's a, a new version of kind of an old um sort of neo-Marxist ideas, also some Freudian ideas and postmodernism that really target the idea of the logos, that we can have, that there's a mind of God who is manifest in the human person of Jesus Christ, who is the author and authority over all. And I think those, um, the logos is the fundamental target. And I know that sounds kind of complicated, but I really wrote the book to be accessible, to make this this concept kind of really clear and in it, that I think anyone can understand it um, once they start reading it. Mm-hmm. So you you write in your book, uh, Awake, Not Woke, that the woke prioritizes a group over an individual. People are viewed as oppressed, the oppressor, or a combination of both. How does this go against our God-given identities? Sure. Well, you know, um, I I think that fundamentally that's a Marxist concept, right, that he really started that idea of we're defining people into division. We're defining people based on, um, you know, being perpetrators or victims. And then that fundamental that but the the problem is, is that what happens is that you're not allowed to think freely at that point. You're you're really reduced to into the mob because you are not, you know, for example, when the Women's March in 2017 was happening and they all wore the pink hats, there were a group of pro-life feminists who wanted to march with them. And they were disavowed from having an official association because the idea is that you have to support the idea that the definition of the human of a woman is fighting against her oppression. 
particularly with it, with that the act of abortion. Um, and so insofar as you're a woman is not empowered. It is whether or not you support the ideology. And Christianity is not an ideology. It's thinking with reality. We're called to think with all of reality, not with a particular political movement that reduces reality to in, into, in, into such an atheistic way um, as Marxism does and socialism does and this movement does. Mm-hmm. Noel, you write in your book that the rupture of the woke movement is fundamentally a crisis of the impending erasure of the human person. On a fundamental level, the response of the church needs to be reclaiming what it means to be a man and to be a woman. Yeah, no, I think this is, um, we're seeing this in spades right now, obviously, with the transgender movement, which is just really exploding. And, you know, there's, for children particularly, there's really a, it's, it's, it's fairly hard to wrap our minds around because it seems too sinister, but there really is a movement trying to get children at young, very young ages to reject the idea of bodily meaning by thinking that they can claim whatever gender that they, that they, that they think that they have, that they can, you know, imagine into a reality something that defies their bodily reality. And the scary thing about that is that it's not just, um, you know, kind of silly or magical thinking. It's actually saying your body is meaningless, which means that you are meaningless. Because our, if you do something to your, my body, you do something to me. Our bodies are, are com- we're a composite of body and soul. Um, so this is how it reject, rejects what the, the nature of the human person. But even before that, the sexual revolution is based on the idea of a lack of bodily meaning that we can catch our, you know, there's no moral law written into how we ought to behave and our bodily meaning. This has harmed us left and right because we don't have any moral vocabulary to speak about the wounds that happen in such a chaotic, sexually open environment. Um, And so people aren't given the language to speak about that. And so they walk through the world with these wounds um, and they don't know how to address them, address them or nor to heal from them. So, Noel, if there was a person struggling with anorexia and they weighed 81 pounds and they they told you that they were fat, what would you say? Uh, well, I mean, I, such a complicated situation. I think that they would need to go to get mental, you know, some, some real help with that. But you certainly are not helping them to confirm them in the lie, right? Exactly. It's not helpful to let them encourage them to harm their bodies because of a fiction. Um, so the, you know, the, the, the first and foremost, whatever course you proceed with has to be based in reality, has to be based in the truth. And we're not helping these kids and these grownups by, by confirming a lie. Yeah. I mean, is it ever a mental health issue that we can discuss or is it non-negotiable when it comes to what a person feels about their body? Yeah, I mean, I think the technical term would be gender dysphoria, right? Um, sure. And yeah, sure. And, uh, and I, I, it's, that's what's so bizarre is that it's become a movement that is so supported on corporate levels, you know, the halls of, you know, mm-hmm. political power, powers that be. But um, I, I get emails left and right, you know, from corporations telling me, encouraging this sort of trans, um, transgenderism. And it's really, you know, I think that the more we let this go and think it's just this fringe issue out there, the more we really are, are just uh, burying our head in the sand and not realizing, no, this is something that all human beings, and particularly Christians, are called to defend what is true. Um, because this is a movement that's harming people, and it's redefining what it means to be a human in ways that are going to have really, um, uh, you know, alarming uh, effects eventually, mm-hmm. if not already. Mm-hmm. Noel, what is the difference between being authentic in the woke culture and for those who are Christians? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, authenticity has become a big buzzword. 
Um, and if, you know, there's a, but there's two ways of understanding what it is to be authentic. For the woke, it really means it's part of this idea of um, you find your liberation in your transgression. So I'm authentic insofar as I'm willing to identify how I have sexual proclivities that are different and make me unique and the way I can embrace them and, and express them into the world. That's integrally tied to my authenticity. Um, and so it encourages you to have the most outlandish presentation of self. I think we see this in pride parades, for example, because the more outlandish you are, the more, you, the more transgressive you present yourself, the, the more free you are, the more liberated you are, the more authentic you are. Versus in the Christian, in the Christian understanding of, the, of such a word, it's connected to authority. It's connected to author, even etymologically. To be authentic is to be actually connected to God, because we were made to, for, by him to be with him. And so to define ourselves away from him is really to be reducing who we actually are. It's to be inauthentic. Um, and so I, I think that major shift is something that we don't notice in language, but it's an important one to understand. Mm-hmm. And well, you say uh, in your book, hatred for an idea an ideology can easily become hatred for the person espousing it. And this would be the true triumph of the very thing we think we are fighting. That's a very smart remark. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's a important thing for us as Christians to be aware of is that we're fighting. And I remind myself all the time, I'm fighting an ideology and not fighting the the people who are deceived by it. Yeah, because if if Satan looks at us and says, whatever I can do to get them to hate each other and divide between themselves, I'm all for that. I don't care what it is. I'll use whatever is available. That's right. He's the great divider. He scatters us. He wants us hating each other. Um, And and there's a real temptation there, I think, because politics gets so heated so quickly. Um, I think the more that we can keep that idea at the forefront, that we are called to be loving people, to break the cycle of hatred and tribalism, uh, but to still not shy away from the truth, the the more effective we'll be. Mm -hmm. Noelle Merring is my guest. She's a fellow at the Washington, D.C. think tank and of public and of Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's written a book called Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with Noel in just a minute. She is a fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. There, I got it right this time. All right, she's written a book called Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. And, uh, Noelle, as we talk about the woke culture, and why does it want to perpetuate the victimization mentality? What is their goal in doing that? Well, I think think when you really perpetuate someone's idea that they are a victim, and, you know, you see this really clearly that they're— it's so extreme that they're trying to say, you know, that uh, with the equity, the equity of results, that any disparity results between different groups is a result of injustice. And the, and the meaning behind that, I think, is really saying that anything that doesn't work out for you in your life is the result of ex- systemic forces that are outside of you. 
and which basically says you don't have any ability to transcend your circumstances. And this is the worst message you want to give to someone if you want to motivate them in any other context. Like if you're a leadership or a mentor, um, you're, you're mentoring someone into becoming a leader or into giving an addiction or, you know, you, you have to help them to see that they, they can make a change. Um, and so that idea of it, it really is one of despair. And once you get people to feel despair, then you, it's a short path to get them to feel rage. And really, this movement is wanting the end goal is a revolution. Um, and so if you want a revolution, you have to have a, a populace that's furious. Mm-hmm. So how does this uh, work against the teachings of Christ and Christianity? Well, um, so the, Christianity marks uh, really targeted as being one of the primary obstacles to revolution. Okay. Why? Because I think Christianity gives us a, a context for our suffering. If our life is difficult, if we have a daily daily crosses, um, you know, if someone treats us unjustly, we're taught that our dignity is found in the eyes of God, not in the hatred of man. We're taught to suffer well our circumstances because our Lord suffered for us. And so we have a model of suffering that is beautiful and and um, and willing. Uh, you know, and so it gives us meaning fundamentally. And the movement really thrives on people being stripped of any sort of meaning, particularly any meaning to their suffering. So why does this woke initiative target, you know, innocent uh, people and then try to destroy family dynamics? Yeah, that's a really important one, I think, to understand. I wrote almost a whole whole chapter on it. But, um, you know, I think part of one of the things we have to be really clear on is that innocence for the woke is a form of dominance. Why? Because to be innocent of something is to perpetuate the idea that there is a norm. So, for example, a few years ago, there's a lot of hubbub about how there were transgender story hours for children at local libraries. And all these woke moms were taking their kids to watch these um, transgender people kind of teach them how to twerk and dance. And they would read them stories and blah, blah, blah. And the idea was that, you know, the, the stated goal was we want them to not be bullies, so we want to expose them to this. But we also want to open up the door in case one of these children is prone to living a life of that's alternative. But the deeper goal, I think, is that insofar as the children felt uncomfortable with these men in high heels and miniskirts and were giggling, that uncomfortability is sort of a sign uh, that they are fringe, that this is alternative, that this is not normal. And so they have to be disabused of that innocence in order to disabuse the concept that there is something that is a norm, a normal way of being in the world. Um, And so you see it in more and more sinister ways where children have to be exposed to adult sexuality, um, where children have to be exposed to, you know, the uh, the gender fluidity. Um, and really, um, it really manifests, too, in the, the act of abortion in particular, where it's the, the fundamental, most deeply innocent um, cr- creature. Uh, it becomes, becomes um, an object, of, a target as well for the movement. And also women. I think women traditionally, you know, are there's a, there's a sort of an, an, an icon, iconography of innocence attached to the woman. Men are called to be innocent, too. I'm not saying that this is only for women. But insofar as women in the feminist movement are called to be empowered by becoming rebels. You know, there's a real rebel spirit. Um, and that's another form in which the, the movement really targets our innocence. Mm-hmm. Noelle Maring is my guest, and she writes in her book, Awake, Not Woke, that critical thinking has been overtaken by critical theory. Define the difference, Noelle, and the dangers that are involved. Sure. So critical thinking is basically, I think, what we normally think is what we're, what we're going to be educated in in school. It's how to think critically, how to develop an argument, and then how to invite the strongest objections to my argument, because my goal is to arrive at truth. And so I want to invite criticism by argument because I want to strengthen it. The goal of critical theory is not truth, however, it's power. It's to train people to become an activist. 
And so that, that shift in goals really creates a fundamentally different methods. So in critical theory, you don't invite objections. You only, can, you only dole them out because your goal is to win, not to arrive at something true. You don't, you're not interested in course correcting. You're interested in changing the system. Um, and part of critical theory is also it's the idea that we don't tolerate both sides. So you're not trying to dialogue. You're actually trying to silence the dominant view. And I think we see this all the time in left and right where, um, or in the media where we're saying, you know, this is such a – there's so much hypocrisy. Like I don't – you know, they're not giving equal time to different arguments or, what, you know, what, what have you. Or they're canceling. They're, they're silencing. They're censoring. Um, but that is fundamental to the movement. You're supposed to censor. You're supposed to silence. You only want to elevate the revolutionary ideology. Noelle, you say in your book that with a death toll around 56 million – per year worldwide, abortion is the sacrament and greatest symbol of the woke religion because in one act, it destroys each icon of the family, the child, the father, and the mother. Meanwhile, the woman is also liberated from any bond to a man or to their child inside. Anyone who knows someone who carries this in, their, in her past knows it to be a lifelong struggle of sadness and guilt. Depression and regret are common, but we are not supposed to talk about that. That's right. I think this has been one of the biggest, um, you know, like psychological operations on women is to think that this is this essential avenue to the way that they become powerful is by um, denying something that's so fundamental to themselves, which is their ability to generate human, a human person. Um, and, you know, we can pretend that it's OK and kind of coerce the, you know, can, um, coerce people into thinking that this is something empowering. But a woman fundamentally understands what she's doing is really is really awful, and it puts women in a terrible place because once you say that this is an, a fine road to go down, well then you know they're a prey to, for example, an irresponsible man who thinks who doesn't want to take responsibility for a child, and so therefore expects her to do this act. So there's a lot of women who I think who are coerced into this decision too, um, and, and that has to be understood as well. So it fundamentally makes a man irresponsible because he's supposed to be a protector. And it makes a woman, um, you know, who is called to nurture the life inside her, fundamentally do the exact opposite. And the child is then disposed of. And, and so this has created a rupture in society that I think is far deeper um, and greater and graver than, than what, we, what we can even imagine. Mm-hmm. And well, how do we turn this narrative around, especially as people of faith, without seeming racist or closed-minded? Yeah. Well, I think that first and foremost, we have to be not afraid, right? So I think that there's a lot of fear, I think, that people have. No one wants to be called a racist or a bigot or regressive or anything, any of these slurs. But I think that insofar as we let that fear control us, we give it power. And we, you know, and, and the more that we refuse to be kowtowed by that, the, the less power those words will have and the less they'll ring true. They start to ring very hollow. And I think we're seeing more and more parents feel that. And, you, you know, the Virginia school boards, the school board movement, and with an election recently out there, I think there's a lot of people are saying, you know, this is not okay what you're doing to our children. Um, and, and the only thing that they, they said in response after um, in objection to the parents' movement was, well, aren't you guys a bunch of racists? Well, that, that rings pretty hollow when you're talking about some of the disastrous things that have been going on in the schools that you're including pornography and ped- pedophilic porno- pornography in school system. So um, I think first and foremost, we have to not be afraid. Um, and I think we have to find a place in our life to resist it, some way in which we can fight against it um, and do so effectively. And we also have to, but the effectively is important. So we're Christians, we're called to be leaders, we're supposed to lead people to Christ, but we have to be effective leaders, which means we have to have, we have to reflect him in the world. So the more, the closer we grow to him 
and understand this is a spiritual battle and arm ourselves in our prayer lives successfully, then the more effective we will be in fighting this movement and leading people to a more beautiful, positive vision of of what their lives could be. Mm -hmm. Noelle, how do you respond to the words that are being changed in our society? I mean, whoever controls the words usually controls the culture. And right now we've had so many words altered, the meaning and usage of them. What is your defense against that? Well, I think we have to never take part in a lie, right, to paraphrase Solzhenitsyn. So, for example, I was talking to a young Christian man recently, and he said, well, I have my pronouns in my LinkedIn, even though I don't believe it. And I said, well, you should change that. You know, you don't, we don't, we don't participate in in the silly act of saying I'm, I'm a she, her, I'm a woman. And so I don't, you know, to participate in something like that is to give, give power to an ideology that's fundamentally destructive. So I think we have to make sure that we are not participating in the lies. Um, we use words truthfully and accurately, um, and you know, it, it, and I think that that can that can lay that can lay a, a real foundation for other people too. Mm-hmm. And what do you hope people get out of your book? I, I, I truly hope that they just it helps people to understand what this movement is, how it functions, how to identify it as they walk through the world in the future, um, because I think the movement keeps reinventing itself. It's not going away anytime soon, but it could be weakened and it could be, you know, I think and I think that we, the more that we have the people read the book and have the courage to kind of help in the, in the effort to weaken it that we can all band together because there's a lot of people who want to resist this. Um, and and it's, it should, we shouldn't be afraid about, about that fight. Mm-hmm. Well, you're a very thoughtful person and very wise. So thank you for coming on the show and telling us about your book, Awake, Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology by Noel Merring. Noel, thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. All right. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we're going to go back into our Old Testament study. We have Anna Rask as our guest today. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are very excited to talk about the prophet Jonah. That's all coming up next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.